and welcome to Get With The Programme. I'm Holly. Hi, I'm Campbell. Uh, and this is a podcast for people who are fascinated with watching TV, but also finding out how it's made and who is making it. If you ever got a cardboard box at home and cut out the middle and then put yourself in it and we're like, I'm on television, you're in the right place. Yeah, or if you ever made bizarre radio stories about Pokemon uh, and recorded them onto a cassette tape, this is also a good place for you. I'm speaking very specifically from experience there. Um, I feel like that's a potential spin-off podcast. <laughs> My Pokemon stories. Do you still have cassette. those? Um, I don't know if I do. I think I might have recorded over them with like Spice Girls uh, CD mixes. It's a shame. Well, if you feel like you could recreate that and if there's demand out there, um, please do let us know at GetWithPod and... Uh, We'll we'll get Holly back in that in that game. Yeah, of that's f- fan fiction essentially. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah. it's at Get With Pod on Twitter just to Sorry, clarify yes. our social media handles. Um, so we've got quite an exciting episode uh, this week, slightly different from our normal setup, um, as it was recorded live at the Belfast Media Festival back in uh, November of twenty seventeen, uh, and it was Campbell chatting um with the legendary Peter Fincham. Yes, like big guns like he's, he's he's done it all too you know? too much some would say to fit into an hour yes too much particularly if you like me planned the session slightly poorly and that i probably had too much in the way of questions and things to ask him and probably a slight obsession with wanting to talk to him about alan partridge but he really has achieved a lot and so we cover lots of things um from him starting off uh, with talk back and building that up into an absolute indie kind of Behemoth, 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 Behemoth. Yeah, it was huge. It was gigantic. Um, and then obviously you know no small thing. And then going on to be controller of BBC One, um, and director of ITV. Um, and please don't let the fact that we give that very important period short shrift because we run out of time. But we do talk about lots of interesting stuff. We talk about working with Mark Smith and Griffiths Jones. We talk about Alan Partridge. We talk about what it's like to run BBC One, to work creating the one show. Uh, we talk about Downton Abbey. Um, and we also talk a little about his new uh, endeavour where he is co-CEO of Expectation, a brand new indie. Um, with uh, along with Tim Hanks and there's some really exciting things coming from them and I think a really exciting place to work so we're we're missing a little bit of audio at the beginning of mm. this um, so uh, before I cue that up just to uh, remind you about what we're up to this week Holly is going to give us a quick update yes so um, Belfast is one of the places that we've been visiting as part of our big outreach tour for the network and wants to watch our two talent schemes that we run as part of the Edinburgh TV Festival um, and we'll be getting out on the road plenty more over the next few weeks so um, take a look at our Twitter accounts uh, for both of those schemes so it's uh, at the network underscore TV and at wants to watch underscore TV if you want to keep up with uh, which bit of the country we're getting out and about to at the minute to talk about um, how to apply and sort of making the most of the application period um, for both of those schemes. Coming up quite excitingly, um, we'll be running a week of um, events and exhibitions at Four Corners uh, here in London uh, from week commencing the 19th of March. So if you want to find out any more about that and the kind of things that we're going to be doing there, um, there's going to be plenty of information on those social media.
media channels and also on our website for the network which is www.thenetwork-tv.co.uk fantastic so the bit we're missing here just to sort of set up um what peter's talking about when the uh, interview starts is his time back at talkback and how he started there and built that company up and peter's starting to talk about the period where the bbc were encouraging um, independence to tender for shows and that was talkback's first foray into making television with alas smith and jones and depending on how old you are that will either mean everything or nothing but it was a great show and was very much the spark that led to a fantastic uh, career for peter which is uh, entering a very exciting new act uh, this is me and peter in belfast meant was that broadcasters needed to find independence to make programs so talkback was a production company mel and griff had a contract with the bbc to make a last smith and jones their program when the contract came up they basically said to, to the bbc we'd like to make it ourselves and the bbc thought thank goodness for that. that that's one that we can give to an independent so i was running the company at the time but I, i'd literally never made a television program so we put together the first production and lacking any other any other kind of role to put down for myself i put myself down as the executive producer so what i discovered is is an executive producer is a credit that can be handed out very lightly to people and so i you know i've never done any of the things that might lead to that and started as an executive producer so you were self-anointed you sort of decided i will be the executive producer it seemed to be the role i was least likely to get <laughs> found out playing um and as you sort of grew into that role perhaps and sort of you know uh certainly going from that period through the sort of 90s so many great sort of classic comedies did that role become a bit, a bit more serious? Yes, it, it, it did. And, uh, but but Mel and Griff are key to this because they said quite early on, um, uh, we don't want, and this is very typical of, of companies, production companies that are owned or part owned by talent. They, the, after a while they realised the danger, which is that they have to keep working to keep the company going. And they didn't want that. So they said to me, can you go out and find some new talent? do some different things so that it doesn't always rely on us having to you know keep making another series or do something else that, that we might not necessarily want to do so so I did so so I started going out and and you, you know talking to broadcasters and I noticed over a period of time that I'd go in to see the BBC and initially um, I'd go to see the BBC and I was as it were the bloke who came in with Mel and Griff they they you know their attention would all be focused on Mel and Griff um, and I was sort of bloke in corner as it were um, uh, and then over a period of time I noticed the attention was more on me because we were making something like the day-to-day -day or whatever and they were keen to talk about that um, and 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 you know I think this was a little bit complicated for Mel and Griff who thought well we've spawned a monster here we spawned a, a production company that's making programs that broadcasters are very keen to talk about um, uh, and where where do we sit in that so it's slightly complicated but it all, I mean in, in essentially you know it was a happy and successful story and Mel and Griff obviously very much representing alternative comedy that generation and then with the day to day that's in many ways kind of ground zero for a generation that's still very big part yeah of but I think I think uh, I think that's right I think so so you know when the day-to-day -day came along it's like sort of when punk comes along and, and Mel and Griff are progressive rock as it were you could look at it <laughs> that way but I don't I wouldn't look at it that way I'd look I'd look at the what's in common between them and what what Mel and Griff um, perceived
conceived uh, um, was, wh why did they start the company? They started, this, something I've never really forgotten, they started the company because they didn't want to feel as if they were part of a big corporation. At the BBC in those days, in, in, in Shepherd's Bush, if you were making your programme in the studio, the bosses, the suits as Griff used to call them, were sitting on the top floor. They didn't like that. That felt as if they were sitting looking down on you as you made your program. So they liked, on a, not, not on a business level, but on a purely kind of emotional level, they liked the idea, we've got a little base somewhere in Soho, and we're not working for them, we're selling a program to them. But that spirit that that, that, that kind of encapsulated, which is... Yes, a production company is a, a creative business is a business, but it's creative first and for, foremost, and the business, in a sense, is what comes in its wake. I buy that completely and always ran talk back that way and think that's the right way to run an independent company. Uh, in other words, if you think of it first and foremost as a business and start with a business plan and try to fill in the dots of you know, financial projections or whatever, uh, you, you, you may not get very far. If you think of it as a home for talent, talented people, great ideas, uh, you will. And it was a home for talent during that period. Do you sort of remember when Chris and Armando sort of came on your radar? I remember, yeah, I remember th th they, they made a radio show called On The Hour on Radio 4. Uh, um, brilliant series. I mean, the forerunner of the day-to-day. -day, and everybody knew how good it was and how good they were. They then kind of... Um, you, you know, shopped around to go where to go with the, uh, with, with the television version. They certainly went to BBC Studios, as they're now called. Uh, but I think they had that same feeling. I thought they think, well, we're working for the people who are, you know, who, who, who are commissioning the programme. They wanted the distance, the kind of freedom that came with being independent. They talked to us, they talked to Hattrick. Um, I don't know why they came to us rather than the Hattrick. At one point, Patrick Marber said it was because we served better coffee. I don't know if that's true. Um, uh, I, it may have been because, and this is quite an interesting lesson, Hattrick at that stage, which was about the early 90s, were very successful. They had programs like Have I Got News For You, Drop the Dead Donkey, maybe Father Ted. They had quite a roster of programs. Maybe the guys thought they'd get a bit lost in that and they wanted to come to a company that could give payment more attention. Um, and in terms of, uh, sort of, I guess, being the production company that was looking after something that was really new and quite rebellious, were there, were there things that you sort of had to keep under wraps? I mean, I guess perhaps more with, more with Brass Eye rather than Face yeah. Today, but there's, there's quite a lot of work involved there. Yeah, yeah. And what I came to learn um, is that on one level, an executive producer's role expands and contracts as to how many problems there are with the programme. So, so if a programme's really difficult, Brass Eye being a good example, you have a lot to do. If a programme goes like a dream from beginning to end, relatively little. So if you take a contrast, because these are all, several of these are spin-offs from the day-to-day, -day. something like Our Man and Partridge was a logical spin-off from the day-to-day, -day, produced by Armando, written by Steve and Armando and Patrick Marber. They knew what they were doing, the BBC wanted it, we wanted to make it, the character existed, etc. I don't think I had to do very much at all. Uh, brass eye because Chris Morris was determined to you, you know, push the boundary in any particular direction he could um, cause trouble, deliberately cause trouble for the broadcasters then, you, then your job expands and you, you, you know, you've got Channel 4 in one ear and, and him in the other and, and, and yeah, it's um, more, more challenging, definitely
it wasn't just comedies, it was dramas you expanded, and by 2001... Yep. Interest comes, that the knock on the door to, to, to be acquired. How, how does that process work, and what was your sort of role in it? Well, the, um, so we, we moved from comedy to drama and to, to factual or to sort of factual features. But, but I have to say, this is one of the strange things about um, uh, maybe about anything that looks successful from the outside. It, it looks like a master plan. It so wasn't a master plan. Um, we got into factual features because I met um, uh, Daisy Goodwin. Uh, uh, actually, at the BBC, I was arriving for a meeting. She was leaving. She worked there at the time um, uh, one day in whatever year it was. And she started moaning about BBC, which is not unheard of for people who work at the BBC to have a moan about what it's like there. And I simply said, well, why don't you come to talk back and we'll find you a desk there. I hadn't given a moment's thought to being in factual features till that moment. I really liked Daisy and can see that she was, you know, quite a force. Now, so from that, you know, entirely kind of serendipitous meeting uh, stems, for instance, Grand Design, still on air today. Um, uh, lots of other things that were, you know, huge successes at the time. So it was terribly accidental, sort of similarly with drama. We quite fancy being in drama, but if we hadn't met a guy called John Chapman, who was a very successful drama producer at the time, similarly, didn't like the BBC, wanted to move out, we had a desk, we wouldn't have got into drama. So it looks like, um, and I can actually remember at the time, uh, um, somebody, uh, a channel controller from the BBC, Jane Root, who commissioned a lot of our programmes, uh, who, who I respected a lot, saying to me, I'm very impressed with your strategy. And I thought, that's so weird, because I never realised I had one at all. And, and, I, and I think that to this day, really, that strategy is all very well, but the pursuit of opportunity is much better. Just pursue opportunity when it's there, you know, in a laser-like way. But again, the idea of a very grandiose strategy, well, maybe, um, but it might just be a piece of paper. So, so to go back to your question of uh, when they came knocking on the door, it was actually in 2000. Um, Yes, again, I think timing, and we were lucky. Uh, just as the development of these companies during the 90s was on the back of the uh, independent quota, and we'd all grown from very, very hand-to-mouth operations. We never really thought we were businesses in the grown-up sense of the word. We never felt very grown-up. Similarly, a moment in time came, um, but this is a moment that's come back time and time again since, when large companies started to think, hmm, content's where you need to be. And that sense, in different ways, has never gone away. In other words, whatever happens with technology, um, uh, platforms, uh, you know, whether we're watching the television uh, online or through television, but, you know, whatever, however we look at it, we'll want content. And I suspect that this will remain the case, that there will be large companies, organisations who want to expand but don't want to do it the, 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 the hard way, the yeah. slow, long, hard way of organic growth. There's nothing scarier um, to a, a, a sort of chief executive of PLC uh, wanting to impress the city than long, slow, organic growth. So if you, if you can imagine, it's like a game of snakes and ladders to them. They want to go up a ladder, so they go out and buy companies. So we found ourselves uh, the, 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 the sort of subject of a, uh, it's crazy to even use this word, of sort of three-way auction between companies all... Uh, 
um, falling over each other to say we'd like to buy talkback. And, and I would sit there. I was different from Mel and Griff. They were just going to, you know, they, 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 they weren't, you know, involved in a lot of the programs by then, but they, they were certainly beneficiaries of it. But for me, I was thinking, but what are they paying for? You know, because it's, it's a company, this is a, a slightly earlier era in terms of awareness of the value of rights. We didn't think of rights very much, we just thought of programs, and we were making a lot of programs. But the programs were made by people like, you know, Armando Nietzsche or whatever, or by then the whole um, kind of Sasha Baron Cohen crowd were there with Ali G and Borat and so on. These people could walk out of the door. They, 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 they weren't tied to us. Um, and it seemed extraordinary, still seems extraordinary, that within that context you could justify valuing a production company in the sort of way that they did. And I remember, not very long after that, because it's funny she mentioned 2001, in 2000, um, uh, what was it, what's faintly remembered is the dot-com bubble was going on. And we, even though we weren't in the internet in any way of, uh, of, uh, at all, we were beneficiaries of the dot-com bubble, because people thought that that meant that content would become more valuable. By 2001... The content bubble, uh, the dot com bubble had burst, um, uh, and lots of online companies went bust and, and stuff. And I remember people saying to me then, the timing of your deal was fantastic, you'll never get a deal like that again. You'd never get a deal like that again. Now, that's honestly proved to be nonsense because, because the business of mergers and acquisitions within independent um, uh, production ha has gone on ever since. And I, until last year, um, as you said, I was working at ITV, where although I didn't have anything to do with the other side of ITV, uh, that they were acquiring companies every six months for about five years, including enormous acquisitions like John DeMol's company, Taupe or whatever. So, so I don't think it has stopped. Um, and, I, and I think it'll go on as long as the, 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 the business of creating content, creative intellectual property, a phrase, by the way, I've never even heard of back in 2000 or 2001, it's what we all call it now, as long as that continues, that will continue in one form or another. And it's, it's clearly, as you say, it's a ladder. It makes sense for the companies acquiring. But do you think consolidation is, is a good thing for the industry at large? Well, I, do, I, I mean, it's a kind of bit of a mixed blessing. But I don't want to take the there's a rather obvious view to say is that consolidation, uh, you, you know, stifles creativity or whatever. Or they all, it depends how they do it. You know, some of the larger independence conglomerates, uh, the way that they come together, saddles them with a lot of debt, then they end up thinking they're servicing their debt rather than making programs. I do think it's, it's hard and it's difficult, and the one obviously I know best would be what became Fremantle, who, who bought us, and, and Fremantle has some fantastic companies within it and some great people and great programs, but, but I seem to remember it always looked like a kind of, uh, um, uh, you, you know, quite a, quite a hard job to... You then you then got to get growth. So organic growth, if you're that size, isn't necessarily that one program will get you to that size. If you're that size, it's really hard. Um, and also, if you've got a company that's based on some very big assets, programs that have gone, you, you know, been going for years, but may one day come to an end, and you can't control that then you might go from that size to that size and then growing back up to there is really, really hard. So, I, yeah, I, I, don't think, um, I, I don't think there's any one rule to be taken of this, but we obviously now live in a world of c 
consolidated super indies or whatever you want to call them, um, very, very large production capability within broadcasters, particularly ITV, who've hugely expanded theirs by mainly acquisition. Um, but I'm, obviously I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now if I didn't also believe very, very strongly in small independence, start-up independence, independence that um, you, you know, can be tomorrow what the talkbacks were then. And once the dust had settled on the deal and it was obviously a new way of, of, of kind of running that company, in your mind were you starting, to, was the clock sort of ticking on, on how long you felt you would be there and were you looking for the next thing? Because you'd been there a while. Yeah, I'd been there a while. No, I don't think so. I'd, I'd been running it for nearly 15 years when we sold it and I signed on a five-year um, uh, contract saying I'd stay for five years. Now, again, this wouldn't happen today. There was no earnout. So it wasn't that I had to stay there for five years to hit all sort of targets. And these earnouts that you get with merge and acquisitions, they arguably do distort companies because people who are in earnout corridors or whatever you want to call them, they start chasing turnover. They start, you know, they'll they'll they'll, they'll start, you know, trying to maximise profits by doing almost anything. So well, quite understandably, I, I understand why. But we didn't have that because it was before the whole business had grown up, if you like, and, and those things had come in. But I stayed, I stayed partly because I, it was a company I loved, and partly because I thought, well, it will, it will send a terrible signal if I jump ship too quickly. Um, um, I, I was quite conscious that this was a very high profile kind of deal that, that would make it look as if independent companies, the, guy, the people who ran independent companies couldn't be trusted when they took the money yeah. they, if, you, if, you, if you shot off soon afterwards. So I felt, you know, towards Fremantle, I felt a strong sense of obligation and so on and so forth. But towards the end of the five year, um, I did get itchy feet. I found that when you sell your company to a large, to something like Fremantle, you, you, for quite a while, you go in saying to yourself and to your colleagues, nothing's changed, nothing's changed. And then you come in one day and you realise everything's changed. Because of course it's changed. Because you are part of, you, we were part of Fremantle, which was part of the RTL group, which was part of Bertelsmann. I mean, we were like a tiny bit of a massive empire. And, uh, and I can remember one particular colleague of mine, a, a, a producer um, called Harry Thompson, who, who, who very sadly died some years ago. But he was a brilliant producer. He, produced original, he was the original producer of Have I Got News For You. He produced They Think It's All Over. He was the original producer of the 11 o'clock show. He gave Ali G, Ali G's name. Brilliant guy. And he would taunt me a little bit with this. So I would say, well, Channel 4 have asked us to do a new series. Um, they need it by March, so I want to do it by March. And he, he would say, oh, yeah, just to make some more profits for the Germans. And I would say, that's a very odd thing to say, Harry, because before we became part of Fremantle, when we were making programmes, you were making profits for... for I suppose, for me and Mel and Griff, the owners of the company. So why are we happy with that, but you're not happy with, with Bertelsmann? I don't get it. But of course, that's a change of perspective that people have. And eventually it made me think, I, d I didn't know what I was going to do, but I thought I want to do something else, and this feels like a chapter of my life that, you know, is complete. And you really did do something else, the, the, the big job, as it were, the, the England football manager role of, of television, and uh, it can be a lightning rod, that role. How, how did the job come about, and did you 
have paused before you took it? Um, I, I, uh, not much, no. I, I can tell you exactly how it came about. So almost as soon as I'd announced that I was leaving Talkback Thames, as we called it then, and I think they're about to call it again now, um, uh, the then controller of BBC One, Lorraine Hegarty, said to me, who do you think your success is going to be? I thought, that's a bit of a hint. And my boss at the time was saying to me, did I know anybody who could take over? So I said to him, um, it might be worth a conversation with Lorraine Hegarty. So they then talked to Lorraine Hegarty and shortly afterwards announced she was going to be the new um, uh, head of Talkback Thames. So, fine. Uh, I, I knew her and that was, that was great and I was delighted for her. Then a month or two passed and they st started looking for a controller of BBC One. Um, and I got a phone call, um, I, th I think it was from Alan Yentob, saying, did I want to have a conversation with the BBC about that? So it was completely unconnected with Lorraine coming to talk back, although people later on thought that we'd done a job swap. And at that point, I still hadn't left um, uh, Talkback Thames. I was still kind of serving out my notice. And I intended to sort of take a sabbatical and do all the things you do and, you know, think and go travelling or something and, and think about what to do with the rest of my life, all that stuff. Um, uh, but I had a couple of conversations with the BBC and then sort of, to my astonishment, they, uh, yeah, I can remember it vividly, um, uh, Jane rang up and said, I want to offer the job, do you want to be the controller of BBC One? Now, I'm somebody who'd never worked at the BBC. I had actually once in my 20s applied for a job um, on a show called The Late Late Breakfast Show as a researcher, having been put up to that by Helen Fielding, who was leaving that job because she wanted to go and write comic novels. How did that work out for her? I don't know. I've yeah. never heard from her since. Um, uh, and I was roundly rejected after one, you know, after one interview, what they called a board, a sort of intimidating group of people um, interviewed me and rightly found out I knew nothing about television at all. So I regarded the BBC as a sort of place that it was very difficult to get a job at and, you, you know, I'd been going into the BBC as talk about making programmes for them but I, I honestly felt quite astonished that, that somebody could offer me the job of controller of BBC One. And I remember thinking, I remember discussing it with my wife, and, and thinking, well, if I say no to this, then I'll, I could spend the rest of my life thinking I could have been the controller of BBC One. Um, so I, I said yes, and, and I hoped to have quite a long sabbatical. I ended up leaving Talkback on a Friday. I think I had one week off, and then on the Monday morning there I was at BBC One. And, and I'd never commissioned a programme, I'd never worked for the BBC, I, I knew some of my colleagues, but there were whole genres that I had had nothing to do with at all. So it was, you know, it was quite a shock, it was quite a, um, you, you know, a learning, a pretty steep learning, learning curve. This might be a good chance for us to go to our first clip. So, handily, it's from I'm Alan Partridge, something that you produced. Um, so if we go for that clip now and we'll um, look at the, the different sides of this table, because you've, you've been Tony and you've been Alan. Okay. Uh, right, okay. Shoestring, Taggart, Spender, Bergerac, Morse. What does that say to you about regional detective series? There's too many of them. <laughs> That's one way of looking at it. Uh, another way of looking at it is, people like them, let's make some more of them. Um, a detective series based in Norwich called Swallow. <laughs> Swallow is, uh, is a detective who tackles vandalism. Bit of a maverick. Not afraid to break the law if he thinks it's necessary. I mean, he's not a criminal, you know, but... You know, he, he will perhaps travel at 80 miles an hour on the motorway if, he, for example, he wants to get somewhere quickly. <laughs> Think about it. No, no one had heard of Oxford before Inspector Morse. <laughs> I mean, 
this, this will put Norwich on the map. Why would I want to do that? <laughs> yep, fair point. <laughs> okay, um, right, Alan Attack. Like the Cook reports, but with a more slapstick approach. Uh, arm wrestling with Chaz and Dave. I don't think so. Pity, because they were, they were very keen on that one. Right, now, you, you, oh, you like this. Right. Knowing ME, knowing you. I, Alan Partridge, talk to ME sufferers uh, about the condition. Um, you know, we, we intersperse it with their favourite pop songs, make it light-hearted, you know, give them a platform. You, 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 you've got to keep the energy up, because you can't... Uh, you don't like it, that's alright. No, okay. Inner city sumo. What's that? We take fat people from the inner cities, put them in big nappies, and then uh, get them to throw each other out of a circle that we draw with chalk on the ground. No, that's a bad idea. Very cheap to make. <laughs> do it in a pub car park. No. no. <laughs> if you don't do it, sky work. Well, I'll live with that. Is that it? What? Uh, no, no, no. Um, cooking in prison. <laughs> A partridge amongst the pigeons. What's that? Well, it's just a title. I mean, um, <laughs> no, no it, it, uh, opening sequence: me in Trafalgar Square, feeding the pigeons, going, "Oh God!" No, no I'm sorry. No, stop. You hosteling with Chris Eubank. <laughs> Monkey tennis. <laughs> There is to be no second series, and I've listened to your ideas, I've listened to them all, and I haven't liked a single one. Tony, I've, I've, I've just bought a house. It's like it's got a Buck Rogers toilet. Yeah. <laughs> one yank, all gone. But we don't owe you a living. You are someone who has a proven track record for making mostly bad television programs. That, that's, that's, that's bollocks. No, it's, it's, <laughs> it's not bollocks. Your, your programs were appalling. The ratings were ninth of what we could have expected. They started badly, they, they got worse. They started badly, yeah, they got worse. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> your programmes, your programmes. Now you're making a fool of yourself. Huh? <laughs> 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 Who do you think you are? Well, unfortunately for you, I am the Chief Commissioning Editor of BBC Television. Oh, let's forget about all this. <laughs> Some cheese? No, thank you. It's quite nice. Mm, it smells. Do you, to, do you want to smell it? No, thanks. Smell the cheese. No, I don't want to smell it. Smell my cheese. Adam, please. Smell my cheese, you mother! Well, hopefully, you never had anything as, as bad as that, but coming into commissioning at a very, very high level, having had lots of experience pitching, being in those rooms, were you sort of very keenly aware of, like, I don't want to be this sort of commissioner? What kind of controller did you want to be? Well, I, I do think there's such a lot to learn from that scene. Um, because, of course, it's a scene in which Partridge makes a fool of himself. But I don't know that Tony Hares comes out of it that well. I, don't, I, ha I like to think I never sat like this while people pitched ideas. Because it's much harder to pitch ideas than to be pitched to. And I've done it for 15 years, so I knew exactly what it was like. Um, I always like to point out there's some quite sensible ideas in among those. One of them, cooking in prisons, has definitely been done. Um, Swallow would be a perfectly good regional detective with a decent script. Um, so it's a strange thing that, and uh, the, the, the only, I remember pointing this out to Amanda, the only unrealistic thing about the scene 
is that if he wasn't going to give him a second series, he wouldn't have taken him out to lunch. It's quite clearly the wrong thing to have done, because it was never going to go very well. But, but it does perfectly illustrate the strange thing about the fact that people go from one side of the table to the other, and they are exactly the same people. So when you become a channel controller, there's a sort of slight tendency to think you'll suddenly know everything about everything. You know, it's as if, it's if people around you want you to have wisdom about all matters editorially. But you're exactly the same person who, who in most cases, was until recently pitching ideas. Um, so put yourself in the position of the person pitching. Personally put, pitching uh, risks, risks um, you know, rejection and even humiliation in that case. Of course, because you're selling somebody else an idea and the art of... I used to say to the, the commissioners in my teams, if somebody comes in with an idea and pitches it to you, and you don't want it, you don't, it doesn't write for you, whatever, uh, which is going to happen, um, you're doing your job well if they're thinking, I'll come back with my next idea. Whereas there's another way of, of rejecting an idea where the person thinks, I'll never come back to see you again. Uh, you're doing yourself a disfavour there because, because you, you know, commissioners need ideas. Ultimately, um, uh, you, you know, the schedules need to be filled with programs and it's producers who come up with those programs. So it's, uh, it's, a, it's a very funny scene, it's a great scene, but, but it does actually, it does observe quite a lot of truth, I think. And how did you, at what, at what stage would have ideas um, come to you directly? How, what role did your sort of department heads have in keeping you away from the Well, th I think there are various kind of uh, um, e eternal tensions in commissioning systems. Um, and one of them is between channel controllers and, and department heads. And it's normal for channel controllers to say, uh, uh, I don't want to make all the decisions myself. I want my department heads to make them. And it's normal for them to be lying because their channel controllers after a while tend to become. So I always thought the worst thing about the title channel controller was the word control. Um, you're not really a controller. You're you're an enabler, an empowerer, and, uh, and, and so I, I certainly tried, but it's for others to say whether I succeeded in it, into, to, to take with me into that side of the business all I'd learnt on the production side, and never quite to, to, to forget it, because, um, and, and the, the bit, again, you know, brilliantly observed in that scene at the, towards the end, when he um, starts saying, I've got a mortgage on my house. Um, uh, never forget that as well. Um, uh, you know, people running small independent companies, um, they depend on those companies and they depend on getting business. And, and you know, normally the commissioner is, is, is a salary person within a larger organisation who doesn't quite so keenly feel the difference. But, you know, that's, that's not to say, you know, there are no empath empathetic commissions. That's not true at all. There are, there are many very, very good ones who are very empathetic. But, but I think that that tension between the two points of view will never quite go away. It's normal if you're a producer to think, I've got a pile of really good ideas. Why, doesn't, why aren't they getting commissioned? Why can't these commissioners see that they're good ideas and commission them? But within five minutes of arriving at a broadcaster, you realise the opposite perspective, which is you're sitting there thinking, where are all the good ideas? Where are the commissionable ideas? And your genre heads come to you and say, I'm afraid we haven't got enough good ideas this time Now, is one, one set of people right and one set of people wrong? No, because they're often the very same people doing slightly different jobs. I think it's just, it's like looking through two different ends of a telescope. Um, and during your time there, you gave birth to The One Show, which 
when you look at it now, it just feels like such a cornerstone of of every sort of week, weekday night. But it wasn't that easy getting it away, was it? Well, it, uh, 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 there was some resistance to it, but then there would be, because at that time, at 7 o'clock on BBC One, there were five different programmes, one each night of the week. So you, you were dealing with vested interests of programmes that didn't want to be displaced, although some of them went a bit later in the evening. But, but yes, again, if you're running a channel for a period of time, you, you obviously... You, 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 you commission programs, you have to decommission some programs, that's the sort of painful side, and you refresh the schedule. That's a completely, that's like painting the fourth bridge, that's just an ongoing thing to, to keep refreshing the schedule. But it's, it's less often that you can do something that structurally affects the schedule. And certainly the idea I had, uh, which then became the one show, was that BBC One uh, would be better with a consistent offering at 7 o'clock. The other broadcasters had a consistent, whether it's Channel 4 News or Emmerdale and ITV, and it seemed to me to be BBC One's disadvantage not to have that. But there was another side to it again, which is I thought that there was something missing from early evening television, which, is, which was an unfashionable thing then, it's always unfashionable to use this expression, was a magazine show. Um, but I like magazine shows. I think they have a kind of honesty that the viewers really like. And if you looked at BBC One at that time and looked over, say, the previous 20 years, the news had actually expanded. There was more news than it had ever been. And news is great, but it's not the same as that kind of light early evening magazine show that the one show represented. So, so we had a go at the one show. Um, it's getting one of those things that had very unpropitious beginnings. There was a, a, a pilot run of it. Uh, in Birmingham um, with different, different uh, presenters that really uh, didn't, uh, didn't make any impact at all. Then there was a pause, then it came back um, uh, and again, so many things happened by chance in life. Um, uh, it, it had been Adrian Charles and Mylene Class, but Mylene uh, was pregnant and expecting a baby and she didn't want to commit to coming back when and if it came back. Um, uh, so we cast therefore Christine Blakely and Adrian Charles and Christian Blake, because immediately they were, you know, that kind of winning duo, that, that kind of on-screen chemistry that you, 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 you dream of. And then, it, and then it started going from strength to strength. And then I noticed that within the BBC, um, they became, uh, you know, they started talking about the one show and saying what I... And, and I kind of realised why, but this is a perfect example of, of, of retrofitting a rationale that didn't exist at the time. Um, it, 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 it suddenly looked like it was a properly Rethian show. It informed, educated and entertained all within a half hour uh, uh, slot at 7 o'clock. Members of the BBC governors, or whatever they were called at the time, would, would turn up in the studio to watch it because it kind of suited them because it was early evening, they'd finished their day's work, they could go out to dinner after, and they'd think, this is good, this is the BBC doing what it should be doing. And it became very set, and I suspect it will remain on the BBC One schedule for, for years to come. So yes, in terms of my time there as a channel controller, um, obviously I commissioned some things, some of which ran for you know, shorter and some for longer periods, but that's probably the only structural change, but one you, you know, that, that uh, um, I'm proud of actually, because I think it's, it, it, it's an important show. There's a sort of fantastic variety within it, and I'm just going to go to another quick clip from the one show recently, which I think sort of underlines that.
from, we heard the story of Patricia, who contacted mm. us, hoping to find out more about her long-lost father. What a crazy show. I know. This is kind of like the sponsor's break. They have to do something serious. And they'll be back to the frivolity of us shortly. <laughs> we, we, we just turn the page and we move on. Right, let's you know. focus on Patricia now, all right? Yes. Okay. Right, this is, okay. But this is nuts. I want you to... <laughs> So, whilst trying to help, we've discovered okay. a brother she never knew about. Okay. Uh, it's reunion time now. Tisha's at the ready. This one's sad. It's sad, this one. Which I think sort of highlights the spontaneity and, and sort of the line. It's a good book. Seven o'clock in the evening, so you can get Mel Brooks, I Russell Crowe. Ross, no, I mean, you get an amazing lineup. Yeah. I always yeah. get the feeling when I watch it, it's like it, clearly their agents are saying to them, this, this mm. is the show you need to be on to kind of reach everyone. That, that point about magazine show, I, I always think we live in an age of, of formats. And, and people love formats, partly because formats are intellectual property and therefore they can have a value. And if you create uh, Wife Swap or if you, cre you create whatever, uh, you, you know, the Great British Bake Off, you've created something of commercial value because it's a format. But viewers don't want to spend the whole time watching formats. Um, uh, they love formats and they love good formats. But, but a, a show of that sort, which is a kind of mixed item, you know, that's enough of that, let's talk about this, that's enough of that person, let's talk to this person, that has a kind of honesty with the viewers. It looks the viewers straight in the eye. It, it also, it's live and, and, and television schedules arguably, um, uh, they once had far more that was live, then I think they became, you know, overwhelmingly beautifully edited and, and, and uh, you, you know, pre-made shows as it were, but you could argue in, a, in, a, in an age of the iPlayer of streaming and so on and changing viewing habits, live's going to become more important because live, you'd never watch, you'd never record the one show. You, do you know what I mean? You'd yes. never watch it on the iPlayer. It's there at seven o'clock in the evening to watch if you're watching television. Nothing to apologise about that. That's a, that's a really valuable function for television. So I'm not going to uh, dwell on sort of the, the, the next chapter. You, uh, people can look it up. Um, I'm sure we sort of really with Queen Gate. There's probably just one question I would ask you that hopefully is different from, from other questions you've been asked about it. If that happened today, right now, do you think it would have had a, a different outcome? I, I, do you think everybody knows what you're talking about? I, I don't, okay. Go on. Oh, I okay. I'll, I'll, say, well, I'll do it if you like. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, I'd been two and a half years or so at the BBC, and I ran into one of those uh, royal scandals that the BBC um, uh, runs into from time to time. And, and, but when I say from time to time, when you run into one, all sorts of people come out of the woodwork to tell you about the last one and say, this is how it works and what happens. And, you're, and you, you know, the last one had been um, Peter Sissons, I think, not wearing the right coloured tie for a Queen Mother's funeral or whatever. So they come from time to time. And I always used to say that there's something about the royal family and the BBC. They, 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 when they clash, they clash big, and and it becomes, uh, you, you, you know, the the, 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 you know, the Daily Mail loves writing headlines with the BBC in it and with the royal family in it. So when they clash, they can put them both in a headline. So anyway, I, I got involved in one of these, and it, and it, and it led to me leaving the BBC um, uh, at short notice. Um, and and the, the only thing I would say. Um, is that it, it felt for me a big thing at the time, and it felt it was in a lot of publicity and was a big thing at the time. But, you know, a year or two later, another thing like that comes along, and then people forget about it. And so you move on. Yes. 
And so around that time, you were perhaps considering making the move that you've made now, which is returning Absolutely. to production. Yep. But you got a call from Michael Gray, is that right? Absolutely right. So, so obviously, never, never having planned to be a channel controller, I then thought, well, I really enjoyed it, but it didn't last very long. <coughs> it ended a bit early. But that's fine, because that means I can now do the obvious thing, which is start a new independent company. Um, but then uh, Michael Gray, who'd been the chairman of the BBC and was then the, I think, executive chairman of ITV, um, rang me and we talked and we met a few times and then he rang up and said did I want to be the director of television at ITV and and I thought well it's a bit like you know turning down BBC One I thought well, I can't really say no and I felt I'd learnt some of the skills involved in in, in being a channel controller but I hadn't you, you know had time to really use them for long um, so I so I you know again I, I thought this is a fantastic opportunity ITV it, it, they aren't actually the same job at all. The job, the job at the BBC, when you're controller of BBC One, um, you're, you're responsible for the peak time schedule. I think the daytime schedule reports to you, but you don't have a very direct responsibility for it. And there are whole swathes like the uh, sport and news and current affairs that don't report to you at all. Um, whereas director of television or ITV, you are ultimately responsible for sport, news, the whole editorial schedule, and all the digital channels as well, the whole suite of channels. So it's a bigger job. And and, uh, you know, obviously I'd never worked at ITV, so a challenging job. And I think I thought I would go to ITV and maybe be there for three years. So I'd have done nearly three years at BBC, three years um, at ITV maybe, and then, and then, you know, bounce back to the independent sector. But for one reason or other, I stayed for eight years. And, and, I, had a, 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 and I loved ITV and I had a great time. And it was a very good time overall for ITV. Um, so, you know, by the time I left ITV, which is the beginning of last year, I had been, you know, 11 years uh, uh, as a channel controller, so way longer than I ever thought was likely to happen. And, uh, uh, but the bulk of it was at ITV. The BBC was, you know, relatively short period. And there were many sort of great stories and highlights from that period, and we don't have time to get into them all, but I thought Downton Abbey would be a good one to, to start with. We've got one last clip just to keep us up. Welcome to Downton Abbey. Masterpiece Classics Downton Abbey is a hit. It's addictive. I could have told you that. An instant classic. How thrilling. It's possibly the best series of the year. Very well done. It's sex status and backstabbing drama. Can't imagine anything better. A forcefulness impossible to resist. Excellent. I'm rather impressed. The best Abbey since Abbey Road. So put that in your pipe and smoke it. I thought well, I've never be, seen that. I thought it'd be fun to look at the, yeah, the, the yeah, American yeah. trailer because it was a huge international hit and I, I mean, I don't know if there's the exact numbers behind it, but it certainly completely sort of revitalised people's perception of ITV as, as a home for drama. So how, how did it come about? Well, it's, again, people will kind of uh, retrofit rationales that weren't the case. So uh, one in particular, I remember, uh, um, was it, it started in 2000, so we, we must have commissioned it in, sorry, 2010, so we must have commissioned it in 2009, and we'd gone into the recession following the global financial crisis of 2008, and the most common thing people would say would be that it was a, a smart thing to do to commission such an escapist series in a recession, because in a recession people love this sort of comforting stuff. Well, yeah, I see the point, but not true at all. Never occurred to us for a moment. Literally, it was a script that was brought to us, and we read it. The, the only... You know, if you're... 
if you get a really, really good script, um, and the first episode of, of, of Downton Abbey is like a masterclass by Julian Fellows in how to set up a, a series, you know, whether ultimately you like Downton Abbey or not, at the end of one hour of a drama or the first episode of most dramas, if you bought into or invested in two characters, you're doing well. After the first episode of Downton Abbey, um, there were probably eight or ten characters whose story you knew you would follow for, for you know, episode after episode. That's, that's Julian's enormous skill. But we, we recognised that it was a really good script and it was brought to us. Um, also, sort of on the market at the time was a remake of Upstairs, Downstairs. That might have been a more logical commission because one of the things about commissioning remakes is you will always get public, more publicity on the announcement. And often that'll be the best moment, to be perfectly honest. Although, obviously, there are very successful remakes, but often they'll disappoint you after that. So I think the only thing that we did that was the right thing to do but was in a sense exercising our judgment, and it obviously isn't me alone, this is my colleagues, uh, Laura Mackie and Sally Haynes, uh, Laura uh, Mackie and Sally Haynes in drama, and, and you, you know, there's a range of people, was realising it was exceptionally good. That was the reason to do it. Um, none of that, of course, that guarantees that it's going to be a hit, let alone an international phenomenon, uh, and again, you know, it, it ended up playing in 185 countries or whatever. I don't remember a single moment during the genesis of it when we would have meetings with Gareth Neem, you know, the producer who brought it to us, and Julian Fellows. Don't remember a single moment when anybody talked about the international market and making it something that would play well with the Americans or whatever. All that we were aiming to do was to have a perfectly conventional Sunday night hit on ITV, um, which we did. Um, but then it went on to being much more than that. But, you, you know, it, it's kind of lightning striking. Um, and for all involved, um, uh, you, you know, it's like a sort of, well, just, they don't happen very often, and therefore it's lovely when it does. But, but I, I wouldn't, want to, um, wouldn't want to imply that there was more than what, what in a way should be your role as a commissioner, which is the judgment you exercise when you read something and say, well, it's very good. Um, uh, I, I suppose what I'm saying is, what, 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 and this maybe go back to how you are as a commissioner, uh, and I would s certainly say this to, 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 to colleagues, is if you think about it, how we treat our suppliers is absolutely key, because when one of them, in this case Gareth Neem from Carnival Films, has got a script as good as Downton Abbey, um, it's who he takes it to first is absolutely key. So we want him to think, I'll go to ITV, I'll get a quick answer, they'll be quite straight with me and hopefully they'll commission it. That's a competitive advantage to us that's worth its weight in gold. Um, uh, because ultimately, unless they didn't know how to read a script, any other broadcaster should have noticed that. So, so in that sense, you think it's a, seller's, uh, uh, a buyer's market, you're the buyer. Um, uh, buying programs from a range of independent producers, but in, in, on another level, it's a seller's market. And when you've got the very best projects, it's definitely a seller's market. And you know, so Dad's and I would be a perfect example. Fantastic. I'm, I'm mindful of, of time. We're, we've uh, rapidly run out of it, so I don't want to kind of reduce your entire ITV tenure just to Downton Abbey, of course, there were many other successes there, but I think it would be remiss to, to finish without talking about the latest chapter, um, setting up uh, Expectation Entertainment with, with Tim Hinks. So, 
When did you know that you were going to leave ITV and that you were going to do this and that you were going to go do it with Tim? Well, I had a, a breakfast with Tim in the course of perfectly ordinary everyday kind of, he was running Endemol, I think it was Endemol Shine by then, um, and I was still at ITV, and, and this is a completely true story. He said to me over breakfast, can I tell you a secret? I said, yes. He said, I resigned yesterday. And I said, well, so did I. So we might as well share that, that secret together. So we had both respectively been to our bosses the day before and said we wanted to leave. It was months, months before we did leave because it was all complicated and, and the announcements didn't come from to months later. But, but that seemed like a really, we were very good friends and, uh, um, you know, very like-minded. And he was coming out of Endemol Shine, I was coming out of ITV. And I'd, you know, I'd quite literally reached the point, as I said, that I thought reached before. I thought, I want to get back to the independent sector. I've always felt like an Indian exile. I've never felt I can do it. I can be a channel controller, but it's not, you know, it, it, it's not what I started out doing. And so it became, you know, cut a long story, story short, just too tempting. People would start saying to Tim, you can do something with Peter. And they'd say to me, are you going to do something with Tim? And, and so we talked about it and spent a long time talking about it. And then we decided to form a partnership, which is probably about the middle of last year. Um, then the latter part of last year, we started trying to you know, put a business plan together and raise some funds. Started to recruit some people, and it's a multi-genre indie. It's it's quite an ambitious indie because we're in you know drama, comedy, factual entertainment, comedy entertainment, factual drama. We're in a lot of genres from the beginning, and I don't think anybody's quite done that with a startup before. But we are a startup indie competing. Uh, for, for commissions like anybody else with anybody else um, and we're very early days we've started making some programs we've got some commissions it's it's incredibly exciting is the truth and, and it's where for me it's where I always thought I would end up being and wanted to be um, but I'm really glad it was a challenge gentleman I mean, now I can now see that through the eyes of an indie it's quite interesting to see commissioners through a producer's eye having seen the, the opposite for for 10 years um, but you know hopefully you, you, you know understanding can flow in all directions. Um, perhaps a question that um, might be useful for our audience both, both here in Belfast and uh, the University of Salford at the end of the streaming. Hello Beth and everyone there. Um, if people are interested in working with you at Expectation, um, whether they've got ideas or, or, or talent, what, 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 what are you looking for? How, what are your kind of values? Well, um, it depends, of course, in what area they've got ideas. And so, um, you, you know, the, the, the ideas can be anything from a drama script to, a, to an entertainment format to, a, to an idea for a factual programme. Um, but I, I'd like to go back to what I was saying about half an hour ago about opportunity trumping strategy. Uh, uh, just as with Talkback, and I'm sure Tim would say this about, you know, the, the heyday of Endemol when he, you know, his... his, his best period at Endemol, um, we were aiming to make great programmes in all genres. Um, you know, our, the first production that we had on air was a, 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 for Sky, was called Game for Grenfell, and it was a big charity football match at the beginning of um, uh, September for, for, for Sky 1. Well, that wasn't in any strategy document, but, but it, it came about and happened when it went very well and we were delighted to do it. Um, and that will continue to be the case. So, you, you know, if you want to boil that down to values, well, hopefully, you know, along with everybody in this room, what do we stand for? We stand for making great programmes. Um, and if you fundamentally believe that great programmes will find an audience, 
I don't think that the enormous changes that have happened since, so well, I've been in television from a four or five channel world to a world, multi-channel world with streaming and time-shifted viewing and, the, and all the rest of it, I, I don't think, you, you know, I was watching on, 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 on telly, I saw well, Peaky Blinders yesterday, I saw Motherland the day before, uh, both fantastic programmes, um, but they, as programmes, um, are, the, you know, one's a one-hour drama, one's a 30-minute sitcom, that is, those forms have been around for 40, 40 years, 50 years, they may be modern iterations of them, um, but that is still what people want to watch, and that's what we want to make. Great. Um, I've got loads of more questions for Peter, but it seems only fair to, to throw it open to the audience, and I don't know whether we've got questions from our friends in Salford as well. Um, has anyone got any questions for Peter? Do you want to just say it again so I couldn't quite catch all of it? Just speak loud, speak up. Uh, what advice would you give to somebody who has some industry background, um, not in the independent sector, but wants to start up? Where is a good place to start? And what, uh, what advice would you give? Sure. Well, I think... I mean, it depends what you mean by industry background if it's not in the independent sector. I, would I don't think I'd ever, ever discourage somebody from starting an independent company. And I never like it when I hear the idea that uh, um, it's harder to do than it once was or that the, the super indies have frozen all the small indies. I don't believe it for a minute. I think the independent sector fragments as quickly as it consolidates, and that's a very good thing. Um, but, I mean, believe in programmes more than you believe in business. I know that seems the wrong thing to say. You've got to run a business like a business. But, but it, it, to a commissioner, um, it really doesn't, your business doesn't matter much, very much at all. Never forget that. It doesn't matter whether you're owned by all three media or you're a kind of, you, you know, run out of a, a, out of a room above a shop. Um, if you as, you as an individual and your colleagues can make good programs and you've got a good idea, that and can deliver. That's what matters to them. So the consolidation and all those changes in the industry are oddly unimportant to the all-important people who actually buy your programmes. Thank you. Anyone else? Hi. Um, I just wondered, given the, where we are today, if expectation in future has a, a strategy, or maybe I should say, are they going to be seeking any opportunities in future in the nations and regions? Yes, absolutely, um, and it's sort of in our plan. Um, it's not in year one in our plan. These are, you know, one of the things about any startup indie and any growing indie is how quickly you grow. Uh, you, you're not in control of that because you, you, you don't you know, commission your own programs, and then at what stage you, you look at the re regions and nations, which I can't imagine anybody starting an independent today who won't have a, a regions and nations plan. So is that like in year two or might have been year three? Well, it will depend to a degree on what happens, what happens quicker. Um, and similarly, uh, a global picture, because, you know, ambitious UK indies, and this is a great thing for the indie sector, are able to look at a global perspective, America in particular, but 
get on a plane to America too soon, neglect the UK market, you'll never get going in the UK market. These are all the judgments you make as you grow. But yes, of course, regions and nations will be part of that.